This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Kanda Mason's Brown Rice Hour, a podcast that quilts together a fabric of connection between land, race, money, culture, and spirit. Discover a connection that engages with the most inspiring and cutting-edge thought leaders today, pointing toward our collective healing and liberation. If you are interested in supporting the Brown Rice Hour, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Kanda. So welcome to uh, my podcast again. I am Conda Mason, and the name of my podcast is The Brown Rice Hour, where we have very interesting conversations, I think, at the intersection of land, race, money, culture, and spirit. And we, I've been fortunate to have beautiful guests um, join me on my podcast, and today is a very special day that I have with, we have with us today, my dear teacher, friend, colleague, Tanisara, who is a Dharma teacher. She is the co-author um, of, of several books, of a couple of books with her, with her, with her partner, Kitasaro. She is the co-founder of the Dharmagiri uh, center of Buddhism in South Africa. And now they are here in, in California at the Sacred Mountain Sangha that they've created the Sacred Mount, Mountain Sangha in California. So Tanisara is absolutely, absolutely one of my favorite teachers, Buddhist teachers. And I just want to welcome you and thank you for joining us today. Thank Tanisara. you. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Kondo. It's, I'm so honored to be on your show and to join you uh, today. And uh, I've just loved uh, working with you and the things that we've done together and knowing the extraordinary work that you're doing and you're so inspirational and such a leader and influencer that um, is forging this, you know, the paths that you're forging, that which I'm, I'm also very inspired by and informed by. So hmm. um, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Well, that's so interesting that it's reciprocal because I just think it's a one-way street of my receiving from you. And you have been such an inspiration for me, particularly as a Dharma student. You gave me, well, we'll get into it, but you gave me permission. Not that I really needed it because I am who I am, but you were modeled, you have modeled what it means to be a Buddhist teacher, a Buddhist practitioner, and be 
deeply involved in the world's issues that need to be addressed. And so I just honor you so much for your leadership. And so, yeah, thank you, really. And I want to um, read a little bio um, on, on Tanisara, who is originally from London, which you could probably hear the accent. And um, she was a Buddhist nun for 12 years in the Thai Forest School of Ajahn Chah and was taught meditation and has taught meditation retreats internationally with her partner, who I mentioned earlier, Kitasaro, for 30 years, who I just love, and I want to get him also on this show. I probably should have done this together, but anyway, next time. Um, together, Tanisara and Kitasaro, they founded the Dharmagiri Sacred Mountain Retreat in, two, in the year 2000 in South Africa. And they co-founded several community HIV AIDS response projects in the rural KwaZulu-Natal in, in South Africa. With Kitasaro, she also co-authored a book called Listening to the Heart, A Contemplative Guide to Engaged Buddhism, which we'll talk about when, I, um, when we get into the, the heart of the show. She is also the author of Time to Stand Up, A Buddhist Manifesto for Our Earth. That book had such an impact on me, Tanisara, and I will we'll talk about that as well. And the poetry books also, she's the author of Garden of the Midnight Rosary and The Heart of the Bitter Almond Hedge Sutra. So Tanisara and Kitasaro recently launched their Sacred Mountain Sangha. It's a California-based nonprofit that facilitates classes and courses, events, and including the two-year Dharmapala training, which I really want to take. Tanisara is a climate activist and co-founder of PAN, PAN, People's Alliance for Earth Action Now, P-A-E-A-N, People's Alliance for Earth Action Now, an initiative in response to the failure of COP, of COP26. She has also practiced the Kuan Yin Dharmas, informed by the teachings of Master Wu. Wa. Sorry, Master Wa, for over 40 years and is in service to Pachamama, the living spirit of Mother Nature, Godmother Earth. Oh my gosh, it is so rich. You, <laughs> I, I can't wait to dive in and for uh, our audience to hear who you are and all that you bring. So again, a deep, deep welcome. And um, we start out by honoring, you know, the sacredness of the land that we are on and by also honoring the indigenous uh, native people whose land we, we set upon. So I'd love for you to begin and let us know where you're calling in from and, and whose land are you calling in from? Yeah, so, um, well, we're quite new to this area. So we did some research and um, this is uh, the lands of the, it intersects between the Pomo people and the coastal Miwok peoples. Oh. And it's geographically uh, in, in, in the, um, in the colonized world called <laughs> Sebastopol <laughs> in uh, Northern California, which is, of course is very near Russian River. There's a lot of Russian immigrants here, so hence the name Sebastopol. And um, I've been quite uh, tracking um, the local indigenous um, <laughs> peoples that I've had a connection with through activist work and um, got to hear about the uh, uh, Sogoria Te Land Trust, 
-hmm. which is a a rematriation of land back, but um, you can actually um, pay taxes for Mm -hmm. being for being on. And that, that's a, that's something that's spreading out across the U.S. So people can locally look up uh, how to remunerate um, and, uh, and, you know, offer reparations through assessing a, a, a tax through their systems that they have in place to, to offer that back. So, yeah, so I'm, uh, um, you know, I'm aware that... Um, and and contemplated a lot. I contemplate a lot just what this land would have been before it was settled, yeah. colonized, invaded, industrialized, you know. And mm. it's of course something that's hard to really imagine because it's been so changed. Yeah. But so you do different. get pockets of it and you just mm. Mm. realize and you feel it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that the coast of Miwok went that far north of uh it's okay. a little, we're a little bit above the coastal Miwok into the Pomo uh, landscape, but we're in this, we're in this slightly um, nuanced area where they I kind see. of, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a sort of space in between that seems to not have really been defined with any particular mm-hmm. indigenous, you know, claim, but actually yeah. the, the two inter- intersect at that, at, in see. that space. Right at Sebastopol. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. And and thank you for, you know, doing the work to really understand um, really what's going on there, happened there. I, um, I am calling in from an area of the land of the Choctaw um, people who were um, this, um, this land, the colonized land is called Louisiana. And I'm in the middle of Louisiana, Alexandria, and I'm in a um, parish, what they call parishes here. I'm in a parish that where the Choctaw are actually today more congregated and where the, the center of, of, of the heartbeat of the Choctaw people still lives. So I'm happy to know that. And we have... Um, this too, I'm on a land, I'm on a 3,600-acre organic farm here. I'm looking wow. out right now at this beautiful land. And I also always think about what did it look like? What was it like when they were um, really stewarding this land? And what we're doing right now is trying to steward it back as best as we can by having an organic farm, by getting rid of the, the chemicals and the, the kind of destruction that took place for many years because this was a former plantation. Wow. So I'm on a former plantation. Extraordinary. Yeah, it's really quite the, 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 the depth of this land is hard for me to imagine. And at the same time, it comes up all the time. And, right. um, and I know that my ancestors got me here because I never would have lived on a plantation in Louisiana. You've got chills when you say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's like, and that's right, I don't know. It's like everybody says, how did you leave Oakley, California, and end up in a plantation in Louisiana? And all I can say is, ancestors? I, <laughs> <laughs> they, they have their power. <laughs> they do. And I think they even are talking about it. I really think that they're more powerful right now than ever, than in my lifetime, I have been able to connect and listen and hear and understand that my duty is their vision. 
Beautiful. And that is where I am. That's what I lean back and rest in when I don't know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I know that it, that is their vision that's coming through me. And so here I am on this land. Oh. Yeah. So thank you for that. And I just like to open up that sacred space and think about all of our ancestors, you know, that preceded us and that, you know, the stories of their lives, you know, whether um, on this North American content. Some were ins- formerly enslaved people. Others were were enslavers. There's so much history um, here, and no matter where you are in the world, your ancestors are who you are, your blood and your bone, and and really honoring that um, you carry that, and we carry out the duty to make life better than than than. Um, as best as we can, I believe. And, and so the work, the work that we're doing today is really, I think, centered around our ancestors whispering or, or screaming in our ears um, of um, what, what the path is forward. And then I think about those who are coming behind us, the, that we will be the ancestors and may we, may we do the work to be good ancestors. That's also a really important piece of the, of the, of the, of the vision. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I asked my first question, it sounds a little random, but it has to do with the fact that food is, I'm on a farm, I'm a farmer and, and I'm trying to be a farmer. I want to grow up and be a farmer. I'm learning. It's a hard job, but, um, Food, I'm a foodie and I've been, it's changed my life as a vegan and getting, you know, the stop eating meat at 19, has changed my diet at 1975. Um, I stopped eating meat and dairy and all that stuff and, and I got into microbiotics and anyway, brown, hence the brown rice hour, (laughs) which changed my life, right? And, and, and so I think that food tells a story. It tells a story of, of our society and and of our own personal history and as well as the socioeconomics that were going on. So I like to ask this question to get a sense of who, where you come from and who you come from. And the question that I ask is what was the comfort food that you ate as a child? What was it and who prepared it? And so that that just gets us started and gives us a little window into into who you are. <laughs> Great question. Um, I grew up in an extended Irish family in West London, and they had come over from Dublin um, around the Second World War for various reasons, mostly economic. And um, my father, who came from the really, um, they were considered the the worst slums of Europe, the the tenements of Dublin. Um, he married my mother, who was actually English, mm-hmm. and she her family came from the East End of London, which is known as a very deeply working class, particular kind of culture. So I grew up in this very, uh, very you know emergent, um, working deeply working class roots, but emerging trying to to you know economically improve. Um, themselves. And so um, food was something that was very important because, of course, as I go through the ancestor work and through my uh, Irish lineages in particular, they went through extreme famine um, Mm. brought on by colonization. So there's a very ancestral memory 
around that. So food was there to be eaten, you know, and you did not leave the table until that was done. And I was a very fussy eater. And partly because actually when I was very young, I became 14, I became a vegetarian, which was completely unheard of. Wow. After reading a book in the library on yoga in India. And I think that was more karmic than ancestral. But so I was always very fussy, but my comfort foods were my, my, my mother and my, my grandmother, my English grandmother was such a, she was a real sweetie and she was a professional cook. Her job was she cooked, um, she was a school cook, but she was so good at it that she actually in the end created recipes for over a thousand schools. And so she was, she was an ex- ex- exemplary cook, all self-taught. She was what they called in service growing up. You know, they were everyone. I mean, my father left school at 14. They left school. No one went to university. No one. That was completely out of our sphere. Mm-hmm. So she was self-taught, but she sort of went up the ranks through her cooking. Hmm. And um, she, she was a great pastry cook in particular, which is a very particular thing. So you know, she had made beautiful pies mm. and um, pastry pies. And, you know, those were my favorites. But particularly, I think my my biggest favorite was beans on toast. <laughs> beans on toast. <laughs> beans on toast. And I still like, you know, like I still go to beans on toast and I'm <laughs> sort of in need of, of comfort. The Irish side were less, you know, they would like have these boil these pieces of, you know, my, my Irish aunt, you'd always, cause it was an extended family. So we'd always be living in and out of each other's pocket and we'd go over for Sunday lunch and she'd go, I'm oh, sure now I've got a, a wonderful piece of bacon on the, you know, and she'd be boiling this bacon with boiling the cabbage down to naught, you know, like, you know, like, as you know, when you do this sort of modern kind of veggie cooking, vegan cooking, you kind of right. like just lightly boil, ca- you don't even boil cabbage, you lightly, you know, whatever you do yeah. to it. They yeah. used to boil it down to the sludge, you know, and then they <laughs> it up. And I would, at the family dinners, I would actually get this stuff and like feed it to quietly to the, because they had a children's table. So I'd feed it quietly to the dog under the, to the poodle under the table, their beloved poodle. So anyway, I wasn't very good at <laughs> poodle on, on the Irish cuisine, but you know, my mother was a great cook and I landed up. That was one of the skills I learned. So when I came into the Buddhist world, I did a lot of cooking on retreats. That was one of the ways I could do the retreats because I didn't have the finances. So I was always cooking like for large retreats. And then I started to cook for the monks. And then I, in the monastery, I was a cook until I became more radicalized and decided that <laughs> this fitted the patriarchal paradigm and I wasn't going to cook anymore. So can... <laughs> I'm not cooking for these men. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I do love cooking. I do. Uh, One of the things I love to, I think it's so primal and um, primary. It, is. it uh, is. I love it too. I had no idea you were a cook. This is my first time hearing this story. Absolutely. We eat together. I, I will, we, we have to eat. <laughs> I, I would love that. And I would love to learn more. But I mean, I have this thick book on macrobiotics because I yeah. admire it so much, but I've never been able to really cook that. But mm. I have really the diet of macrobiotics is one of the best Ayurvedic and um, yeah. macrobiotic is the best diets that I've come across. Ma- macrobiotic in particular is, is incredible. It, it was incredible. It was way early. Like I said, it was in the 1970s. And um, the, what was the name? Michio 
what's his name? Who did the macrobi? I can't even think. Yes. Anyway, I was a follower and did it. It was just, it was incredible. And, um, I'm, you know, I'm no longer microbiotic, but I've been vegan since then. And, um, yeah, I never looked back. I couldn't. Me I couldn't, too. I became a vegan about, I think, I mean, I've been on the verge of it for years, but I finally shifted, I think about five or six years ago. Yeah. And it's actually yeah. incredible. I would never, oh. I mean, it's, I just, it's just so haunting for me what happens in this industrial uh, animal farming. It's just horrific. It's horrific. And I just realized I didn't want anything to do with any of it. You know? I can't participate either. It's yeah. just really, if people would educate themselves and understand what it really is, it would probably just horrify. And it's, you know, sometimes it's like, don't look, don't, don't ask, don't tell kind of a thing. And, and, um, and it's unfortunate because Very. the kinds of um, lack of compassion, the reverse of what happens in those places to our our fellow, you know, species, other species, our brothers and sisters species who Absolutely. are just being as horrible as if they have no no consciousness, no feelings, no anything, and it's not true. Absolutely. It's not true. Absolutely. You know? Deeply, yeah. deeply sensitive and aware and conscious with family systems and family systems. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know, the cries of the mother cows and you know, it's just it's just horrific. And so I am too, you know, been very Im- impacted by that and left the meat industry for many, many years ago. And I can't even imagine anything different in my life, but that's just what it is for me. Actually, uh Tara Brock and I have done a little podcast, a little special on that too. And we want to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for the food conversation. I had no idea. So now you got to feed me. Um, I'll try and upgrade from beans on toast. (laughs) Yeah. Upgrade it a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And so, you know, I want to go back to talking about, um, the Thai Buddhist tradition of Ajahn Chah. I want to start there because honestly, I have so much, I try to turn my jealousy into mudita. Um, <laughs> I so wanted to meet him and, and to have studied with him. And I'm just, I just love talking to anyone who has had that opportunity. Um, being in the lineage of Ajahn Chah with my my teacher and, and, and mentor being Jack Cornfield and coming from that lineage. So, and, and, and you, you had a chance to be with him. And I really wonder what you're like, what is the biggest takeaway that you had during that time and what kind of led you there and what led you out? Well, um, I met him when he first came to the UK in 1977 Mm-hmm. And I, at that time, I was cooking <laughs> on a retreat, <laughs> and we were sitting. Um, you know, it was one of these early Vipassana Goenka type retreats. Oh, yeah. Although it was led by a Burmese monk, and we would listen to the tapes. It was in the UK, and he had just arrived in in the. It was his first time to the West, and he arrived, and he came to see what we were. You know, what the scene was. So he mm-hmm. came into this retreat and we had just completed this 10-day retreat or were nearly completed. And then my first impression, we were sitting in these old Nissan huts. They were they were huts that were, they were evacuee camps actually from the Second World War <laughs> where the children were evacuated to from London. And they were still, they're still, they were still up in this 
old Victorian house that was bought by a Burmese family that were refugeed from the uh, political situation around when um, Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, father was assassinated in Burma. Mm-hmm. So that gives the context. Anyway, yeah. we were we were sitting there and it was unexpected. No one announced it, but then these two monks walked in the front of the of the hall mm-hmm. and one of them was a very tall, lanky Westerner, which was Ajahn Sumedho, uh, mm-hmm. Ajahn Chah's first Western disciple. And the other yeah. one was Ajahn Chah, who was small and squat and rotund. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't so much, I mean, they looked very... <laughs> Right, Mutt and Jeff. (laughs) But it was the vibration. You know, it was like they came, it's like they had walked in from another planet. And I, I, what I picked up was the frequency of vibration immediately. It was like, I was almost like completely kind of frozen in time, just feeling this energy. And then what Ajahn Chah first did before he said anything is that before the retreat started, we didn't really even know we were doing Buddhism, or I didn't. It was just meditation. But there was this Buddha statue. Mm-hmm. And no one's like, oh, it's just this Chinese thing, you know, whatever, Asian thing. So they stuck it in the corner. So Ajahn Chaw saw this and he he picked up, he picked up the Buddha and he put it on the table. Mm. dusted it off and then he bowed he got down and he bowed so that was his first teaching to me that was like seeing him bow and I'd not seen that before it was like to me I just understood somatically this is the perfect way to be in life Mm -hmm. so then I snuck out of the retreat and started to listen to him and the very first talk I gave he gave it was translated I just kept sitting there thinking this is incredible this is this you know, and I was just so filled with, with you know, just, and then at the end of the talk, he said, if you've been sitting there thinking this is good or bad, you haven't been listening properly. <laughs> good or bad. Good or bad. <laughs> right, yeah, right. So, if you, <laughs> so, so I met Ajahn Chah a few times in that t- visit, and then I was went to Asia and then went to Thailand to visit him there. Mm-hmm. And it was there that he suggested that I become a nun. So I went to stay with the first Western nun there, who's no longer a nun, but her name was Kumfa. And, um, you know, I mean, I was 22 and I was like, okay, I'm going to now be a nun in Thailand, but I better go back and tell my mom, you know. (laughs) Good idea. (laughs) (laughs) So I went back to England and just thought, I'm going to pack everything up and go off to Thailand. And so um, when I got back, they just started, well, two things happened. I went to see Ajahn Chah, you know, it's like 1979. He'd come back a second time and I went to see him again. And he he said, you know, when I went to see him, why did you come back? And I'm like going, well, you know, Western calm. And he didn't seem impressed by my answer, but there was a monk helping to translate. And that turned out to be Kitty Sara, who's now my partner who had this strange accent, you know, he's from Tennessee. So he was like, yeah, yo, you know, (laughs) I was like, who's this guy? You know? So anyway, I mean, I had no idea. I mean, we were in the monastery sort of like, you know, along the same tracks. He was 15 years, I was 12 years. So, you know, we didn't realize we would land up in this partnership and marriage, but at that time, obviously. 
So the, so the karma was already being set that, you know, like, so Ajahn Chah, then I, I rang my friend who I lived in the commune at that time. We were organizing retreats and I was cooking again. <laughs> I rang my friend who was Italian. It was a mixed European. And I said, you've got to come and meet this master. So I dragged her up to this place where he was staying at this, this, this Burmese sort of site, which was now a Buddhist center outside of mm. Oxford. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of went up to his door, like this little wooden cabin that they'd had for him to live in. Right. And I just went bang, bang. <laughs> I had no idea of monk's <laughs> yes. etiquette or just bang, 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 bang. Oh so he God. opened the door and he, before he'd always been like this, like very gregarious and funny and engaging and dynamic. And, yeah. and I sort of immediately had this feeling of like being in a lion's den. It was like, oh, oh. there's a different, he looked really like, quite sort of stern mm. so the, but he invited us in mm-hmm. and we sat down and I was sitting in front of him and and I could feel oh god this does like <laughs> <laughs> this may not turn out so good <laughs> and he said to me what do you understand about no self mm. and nata and it was translated. And of course, you know, I'd done a few meditation retreats. And so I read a few things and I'm like, oh, okay. So I started talking. And the more I talked, the more my sense of self and my face reddened. I could feel it like the heat. Like, like I felt like I was growing, you know, like, and he was getting emptier and emptier. And in you were the getting end, more I just, self. I know. I just petered out and I looked at this down. I thought, could I just please disappear now? You know, it's like I felt so. <laughs> And he says something in Thai and they refuse to translate. And so he said it again more forcefully. And they said, you know, he says you're very ignorant. And <laughs> it's like he just got this pin and went, Poop! and I went, <laughs> the balloon just deflating. But it felt such an honor, you know. Um, wow. It felt so. And then he gave this incredible. I don't remember the talk, but he basically was non-self. He basically was just the Dharma, you know, so he gave this transmission and, you know, basically, you know, I was just hooked on Ajahn Chah from the very first bow that I saw. I don't know. It was his, you know, he called it stabbing the heart. It was, you know, I hadn't, to me, he, he, what took me into, I mean, people say, why did you go into a monastery? It's this extreme thing to do in England at that time, because at the same time this was happening, they started the first monastery just down the road from the commune where I was mm. in West Sussex. So I didn't need to go back to Thailand. I just went there and then I cut my hair off and there was a few other women and we began as the first nuns. But, you know, that was there was nothing in the culture at the time. And it was, a, you know, we were doing this rigorous thing, you know, like get up at four once a week, we'd sit all night on the moon days, meet, eating before 12. I mean, it was like hardcore. Wow. And there was no way I would have just sauntered into that. And what preceded that, which I haven't really spoken about publicly, but I'm thinking of actually writing more about it, was my explorations through psychedelics as a teenager. Mm-hmm. which completely changed the landscape for me. And that was at the end of the wave of the 60s. Right. You know, so I was completely unprepared for what opened up from my mm-hmm. cultural background mm-hmm. when I realized that, you know, this being wasn't really me. You know, I was just like, it was like a vehicle. And yeah. I landed up in this, you know, this transmission of like, like this sort of source code almost of what we're doing here in this very vast consciousness. So trying to ground that, 
I mean, I really was led to the monastery in that 12-year journey through monastic life was really what what was about was about integrating and grounding and finding a path to try and access, you know, for a long time I was trying to access that same state, but that wasn't really that's not really been part of the, you know, part of the curriculum for me because a lot of it was just realizing that it's a path of purification. Like personal purification. Yeah. Versus versus well, you know, collective. just to just to realize that jitta the heart's already that radiance, mm-hmm. timeless. Mm-hmm. But what what obstructs, you know, so what obstructs that direct realization. So right. monastic right. living is really a confrontation, mm-hmm. uh, a direct confrontation with 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 what obstructs, you know, and it brings yeah. that out, it forces the issue. Well, Ajahn Chah style, you know, he would go straight yeah. to that. You know, people would go to him in Thailand. And they want lottery numbers, you know, like, do you have a nymph? They call nimitta, like a vision. And if, the, you know, are there any numbers in there? <laughs> they take them. And they go to Ajahn Chah and, and last little story, because I know we need to move on. And they go, you know, like, can you, have you got any like numbers? And he'd go, yeah, I, I've got a nimitta. I've got a vision. He said, I see dukkha. <laughs> I see Dukkha in the end of Dukkha. Do you see that? But when he died, the, the date of his death day, they mm-hmm. all in Ubon, where he was in the northeast mm-hmm. of Thailand, they all used the numbers and the, everyone won the lottery. No way. The, <laughs> the numbers of the date that he died? The, yes. the day, month, and year? Yeah, yes, yes. That was the numbers everyone <laughs> rushed off. And they, they, they bankrupted the bookies. You know, they just... Wow. <laughs> the, the, the headline was the meta of Ajahn Chah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that is so interesting. He was very powerful. Very powerful. He never talked about, but he clearly had a lot of psychic powers. I mean, I never met him, obviously. And, you know, many, many decades later, he's had such an influence on my life and so, and, and all of my Dharma siblings. And so the power of this, of this individual and just reading about him and the, the kinds of answers to questions. And, you know, it's just, it's, he was, um, yeah, I'm so happy that you had that direct experience. That's amazing. And I, I, what actually made you leave? Why did you leave? Uh, well, the, you at, know, at um, I was very, very devoted. And I didn't, you know, to tell you the truth, I was very, very uneducated as well. So I wasn't really, I didn't really have a political or socio-economic frame to filter anything through. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have, I didn't even know the word gender, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I didn't even have, you know, a gender analysis. Um, I was just in there thinking I was the same as everyone else, you know. Cooking up a storm for everybody. But eventually, you know, when it started to dawn on me, what we would now call what a deeply patriarchal system it was. And how the nuns were, you know, we were in a a no man's land, really. We weren't, we were, you know, the nuns to this day, unless they're full bhikkhunis, full ordination, they're not considered part of the sangha. Right. You know, so, um, and that shows up in a million different ways. Yeah. And um, the, you know, the discrepancy. And it started to actually, what happened first was I started to get sick and it, it focalized around my throat. I had this cough. 
that mm. wouldn't go away. And then one day I realized I didn't have a voice, mm. you know, so, and then it kind of, so it was, it was such a deep shock for me to wake up into this, this um, system. It wasn't so much the Dharma or the the teaching. And I remember one day sitting at the nun's cottage and feeling this two and a half thousand year war against women to mm. keep women out, the deep feminine, how mm. the, how, and, and I just couldn't feel how that was going to break. Mm. And it, it kind of catalyzed me and pushed me almost into a nervous breakdown, wow. which was really misunderstood. My teacher thought it was like a breakdown of my sense of self, but it was really more the impact of that. So anyway, I kind of, I started to become, I started to challenge the system in all sorts of different ways. Uh-huh. And while uh, you were a nun, while you were yeah, still, I mean, it wasn't so much a strategy, but it was something deeper that would start to speak out, you mm-hmm. know. And and it was a voice that I realized is very ancient in me, and it came out when I was first going to Catholic church. We were being scripted into doing confession, and uh, mm-hmm. I was in the priest confessional box. I was about ten. And I was reading, you know, had to read these sins that we were done. And and I, I, this fear came up. And then underneath the fear, this voice came out, which wasn't really my voice because I was very voiceless as a, as a kid, really. But this voice came out and just said, I'm not doing this. Oh. <laughs> and wow. I was so shocked. He was so shocked, but it was so authoritative. And it was that kind of thing that started to come out, you know. And I think in the end, I got exhausted with the struggle because the yeah. – it became, you know, the the level of uh, sickness. You know, I felt very depressed. You know, there was just so many symptoms of oppression that came yeah. out. I didn't really have the psychological languaging yeah. for it. And also how it was very divided. It divided, you know, when you're in the subset, mm-hmm. um, you know, group in a, in a, underneath a dominant right. group, it's actually often very divisive. Mm-hmm. Because in people in that yeah. subset group, because yep. people are finding their power relationship yep. to the existing power structure, so right. the nuns could never coalesce together. Right, they were always fracturing trying. around this dominant power dynamic. Right, and so, so yeah. it's very I- impactful. But you know, and I think really, you know, I kept trying to devote myself to the, you know, to bring about the high order nation and this and that. But when, when by completely unexpectedly, Kitty Sarah and I kind of collided, mm-hmm. and 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 from friends, we very quickly felt this attraction. Mm-hmm. And the thing that you don't do in a monastery is speak about it because that kind of obviously like breaks <laughs> right. the spell of your monastic. But we started to, and he was at a place too. I think after doing a year solo retreat, when his affinities were like moving more kind of a little bit out of the sphere of just the alignment with Theravada. He was connecting with also the Guanyin Dharmas and yeah. and a lot of openings. So as we were speaking, something started to change, you know, like alchemically with us. And, you know, we were falling in love. And for me, it was like a choice of the path, that path of relationship and love. Yeah. That happened very quickly. Yeah. And I think partly what led up to it also was a feeling of exhaustion of mm-hmm. trying to face off against this mm-hmm. patriarchal system. 
Yeah, trying to change the system from within. You know, it's so interesting that we've not talked about this, but my also I have two other friends who did years of being and uh, being nuns, Buddhist nuns, and the exact same story of the patriarchy bumping up against them realizing their own who you know who they are and who they aren't, and you know, and um, and really bumping up against that system and. What you just spoke to about the sisterhood being fractured as well, when, we are coming up to more consciousness. And when not the nuns started to actually really coalesce after I left, after, you know, quite a few years, there's some uh-huh. quite powerful women and they started to get outside therapeutic help. And they started to really coalesce and empower themselves. Uh-huh. And as that happened, they started to explore the higher order nation in tandem. But it so threatened the system. Yeah actually, that then came, came out under the auspices of the abbot of the time, right. came, who's still the leading teacher there, came out this, um, this sort of piece of legislation which basically crushed them. It's called mm. the Five Points. It was a whole dr- drama around it about 10 years ago, which I got quite engaged with. But it basically demolished the nuns' community pretty mm. much wow. and, and kept it in a perpetual... It, you you know perpetually doesn't allow it to evolve evolve didn't allow and also the feminine within the masculine you know so so that that you know i think as uh, you know a, a, a subordinate group starts to really organize and become it's so it's the threat you know you can see it with the race dynamic now you know when the the, the level of response becomes more and more primitive Yep. more and more sort of just brutish you know it's always been brutal but it's so threatened um you know so anyway that was a shock for many people not so much for me because I'd lived it you know to realize what keeps these things in place right is underneath all well it's a shock because people like expect spiritualized people to be more you know, um, you know, it actually was very violent what happened. I, I consider it quite violent. And it feels like <clears throat> when I think about your voice now, I, like it's hard for me to imagine you not having a voice and listening to that time when you didn't, because your voice is so clear and so strong and so upfront. And that time in as a nun had to be a big part of informing of the lived experience, not just the, you know, intellectual experience of, of domination and, and subordination, but the lived experience of it and who you are and what you bring to the world. It had to be um, an incredible yet hard, as those things are that we learn the most from, um, a real learning ground the the actual visceral lived experience to understand it so deeply because your analysis now, your analysis is so, so deeply rooted. And it I see too the connection of your lived experience of, of, of being a nun in that in that patriarchal heavy patriarchal system. I think about um I know that the next move that I know about was South Africa. And I know that in South Africa, I mean, we're looking at the one of the most repressive regimes on the planet with apartheid. And then you go to a South Africa. Now, I know that, you know, I think uh, Mandela was released in 1990. I think you got there in 2000, right? We got like there in 1994. You got there in 1994. At the so liberation. You were there. Okay. And, but the Just after the liberation. Stuff. 
I mean, I the see. political liberation. I see. Okay. First vote. The first vote was April 1994. Mm-hmm. We arrived in November 1994. Ah, got it. So you then go, <laughs> you end up in the most, you know, repressive regime on the planet at the time, it seemed one of them anyway. I'm sure there's others that I'm not thinking about in this moment, but there you are with um, deeply deep repression and 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 you coming out of that and having a lens of of spirituality and buddhism and and understanding that these kind of systems can't continue and so the work of dharmagiri i guess i'm i'm trying to get you to speak to your arc of coming to South Africa and why and how that plays into this incredible voice that you have and created and particularly around around injustice, patriarchy, all of all of what you 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 speak to right now. And of course climate is a huge one that we'll get to. Well it's um you know, we it's like been a 30-year nearly relationship with South Africa, a very, again, deep level, deep for cereal, is that the right word? You know, in your guts level. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was a complete, I, mean, I knew nothing about South Africa other than the word apartheid, of course. So actually, uh, um, I, I, I'm going to struggle to try and distill something so huge. Yeah. Um, it, it felt like a heartbreak. It felt like a heartbreak. Mm. Like a heartbreak. And um, I think one of the affects of apartheid was seeing how much things, you know, I don't know, this weighty co term is very appropriate. This sort of, the, this, that which splits apart. Yeah. That which sort of in very, deep and strange ways that you can you can hardly track and yet suddenly something that seems so cohesive and connecting just you, there's a movement that happens and there's this oppositional oppositional dynamic yeah and um what i what i really was confronted with this deep rural area was both the extreme trauma of the black community and the the massive amount of this, you know, disarray from all of the impact. It wasn't just a 50 odd years of apartheid, it's several hundred years of colonialism, land displacement, migrant labor systems, extreme poverty. Um, so, you know, the people of the, the, the Zulu community were, you know, were demolished really mm-hmm. um, in terms of, not in terms of their own culture and their own way that they would then pull together but in terms of resources and access to resources so for me that was that 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 and that in relationship to um a white community that had been used to having enormous privilege and entitlement and that within that underneath as i started to work with the dharma and we started to work with the dharma <coughs> realized that particularly those that had been shaped and grown up in that system, there's a real way that there's a a desensitization or a split between 
the um, the abstracted view that you have to hold to hold a, a, you know a peoples as an other to justify apartheid, yeah. and the felt lived experience, which the felt lived experience is one of intimacy with other beings. You know, so there has to be this sort of cutting off and denial of the deep sensitivity, which is what patriarchy does as well. Right. So, you know, how that plays out, what I experienced was a fracturing of trust. If mm. you don't have that, if you're not allowed that deep, you know, landing in, in empathetic relationship with other um, due to these categori- these false categorizations, categorizations of gender race and all the rest of it that goes with it then you can't really trust you know so there's this defensiveness mm-hmm. and what i what i experienced it was to teach at depth became very threatening because it's an invitation to deconstruct those defenses mm-hmm. it's very threatening anyway at a certain point so we actually found ourselves because of that in a very ambivalent we were held i think in a very ambivalent position and found ourselves in, you know, and also in the crux and crosswaves of, of a, of a community that was economically dominated by white, by white power, but also defending itself from, you know, the 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 book of poetry I did, the bitter almond hedge. Mm-hmm. Um, was was the bitter almond hedge was the hedge that the first settlers in the 1600s planted around the the settlement of Cape Town to keep Africa out, you know. So there was so in a way that became internalized until it was legislated as apartheid. So the whites have this like keep Africa out, you know, feeling, and the fear and underneath that this tremendous irrational fear of being engulfed or destroyed. And in fact, it's a projection because it's the white community that engulfed and destroyed Africa. So, so it's a very, you know, I know this is, you know, sort of take another whole podcast, but it's, it's just such a complex dynamic. And for Mm -hmm. me, it became about trying to survive this Mm -hmm. and grow something that was positive and not be destroyed in the process. There were many forces that tried to destroy us. But so who was your audience? Who was your community? Who were you? Who was your sangha that you were going after? Was it the black South Africans? Was it the white South Africans? Or were you trying to bring them together? What? What was? We we did we actually didn't try to do anything other than be a presence and open mm-hmm. the door, and okay. try to be you know in relationship and see who walked through that door. We didn't proactive. I mean, it's very complex because of the missionary. You know, whites coming in to try and sell Buddhism, you know, who are peoples already colonized by Christianity. We weren't really, that wasn't, you know, it's a very delicate thing that have their own very deep Christian ancestral, you know, thing going, you know, as their spirituality. Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, what started to happen is that the more mobilized, upwardly mobile middle class, often women that have were leaving the African patriarchy themselves, mm-hmm. um, were beginning to turn up for meditations. And now, you know, you know, you know some of those women that have trained at Spirit Rock, that have gone through the, you know, different They're white women or, or black black women, black, you know, black, uh, African, African African, black African or white yes, African. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, that trained at CD at the community Dharma leader and one yes. has just gone through the IMS teacher training. So yes. Um, but they're, they're very few, you know, mm-hmm. but 
our, our um, what's happening now to fast forward, we've, we've handed, we put every, all the assets we put into a nonprofit and we basically wanted to gift it the whole thing of Dhammagiri, um, the land, all of it, which was originally in our name. We wanted to gift it all to South Africa, mm-hmm. you know, but what's happening is that there is, uh, you know, that the majority of our board are non-whites, but all of the all of the people involved are, you know, they're just a different generation. They are people that have come up from the ashes of what was apartheid mm-hmm. and are very deeply schooled in the damage of it yeah. and are looking for forging something else. And they're, you know, mixed racially. So yeah. Um, <clears throat> wow. What a what a I never made it to Dharmagiri. I tried, I think you know, a couple I of know. Times. Well, maybe one day you'll go there and teach. I would love to. I would love, I'd love to sit. I'd love to sit. And then you're I'd also welcome to come and sit. There's such a powerful place. I know That's it is. The mountain, the yeah. mountain. It's, you know. You know, I, I think about, um, I'm going to shift to like, where you are right now and you know I wanted to there's so much I want to talk about with you and maybe it's part two because I you know your books really guided me in a way that gave me faith in Buddhism (laughs) that said this is for me because you open this path and this lens around patriarchy that no, you know, and, and all the things that you have, have led. I, I think about you, um, Tanisha Ewing and Kitasaro. Um, it's like your retreats, you can't even get into them. They're always sold out like immediately. So all the students, every, you, you have so many of us who love how you all teach and what you're teaching and that you are so rooted in justice and in, and in compassion and Kuan Yin and all the many things that you bring that, is, that are strikingly different than most Theravada Buddhist retreats. It's very different. And I, I mean, some of the same stuff, but you know, you have a deep signature that we're driven to that is pulling a lot of us in that direction that we're already there. And we're like, ah, there's a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think about where you sit in, how you, in the position that you sit in with the other Theravada teachings and teachers. And if there is, um, if there's any, like, how do you, how do you all fit into this, this sangha of, of, of Theravada teachers in the West? And how do you see yourselves in that? And are you, are you, um, cause you're sort of on the outside in many ways to me. Do you feel like you're on the outside? Yes. Or do you feel you're I on the inside? Pretty much do in a certain way. I mean, it's, I, I, I think there's respect and all the things you say, but I also think there's ambivalence towards mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine for me. I, I'm quite happy to be on the edges of, <laughs> I think it's the best place to be actually, yeah, because once yeah. you're beholden to the systems and the certain yeah. formulate ways that they, you know, there's a certain way that the transmission is very monochrome in a certain way, you know, in terms of the fullness of not only what it actually is, but the potential of what it can be. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think this is still because it's so beholden to the rational Western metaphor. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I'm glad that's changing with the influx of the, the BIPOC community that have radically in the LBGTQ I community have sort of radically been reshaping things, mm-hmm. and you know. But it's I still think. Do you feel like it's changing? Do you? Oh, feel yeah, like? yeah, I do. I yeah. do. Yes and no. You know, yes and no because it's an edge, isn't it? Because in some ways it's changing, and in some ways the forms is perhaps changing the the the, the fuller potential of the of of the previously marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. For, for having to some to some degree conform to the structures that are still fundamentally in place, right? I think the I think the structures that are in place are not are not up to speed enough to meet what we're facing now. You mm-hmm. know, we don't even have co- conversations mean? around the you know this extraordinary moment of you know mass extinction (laughs) you know we're still going on as business as usual we're still flying loads of people into retreats you know there's just so many conversations that we need to have we still you know that um that the the current um philosophical shaping and psychological roots of of how we got to where we got to in the insight movement, you know, it's just, it's just a little, like, sometimes it's a little boring, you know, it's just the same tropes that, you know, (laughs) and we, are we really investigating what is it we're facing a a possible hot war with Russia, you know, (laughs) understanding what that might mean, you know, and and there's this tendency, I think there's this tendency to act as if the Buddha who was so radical that that but Buddhism, as we you know practice it in the West, is this this kind of um, whitewashed over kind of pablum like you know just think good all the time and 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 I I find that that is not going to last. It can't survive not being engaged in the absolute of today and how it's really and that's what you do. You bring the dharma in front and center into how we can see the world and be a part of it right now and as if the two things can't exist that's how it's kind of set up as if the two things can't exist that's a false split that goes right to the core of theravada and that's you know that's why i feel it's an incomplete you know that's why kitty i mean one thing that happened in south africa we had that you know decades to synthesize a unique kind Mm -hmm. of expression that fronts and brings forth a bodhicitta non-dual not only as an ideal but as a natural practice right and i think you know if a lot of the senior dharmas teachers fessed up a bit more they would all have to admit that they've gone to other teachers to get that piece outside of theravada of the deep non-dual peace you know the deep intimate you know to put it non-dual I find rather cold language but the deep intimacy of all things where there isn't a split between Mm -hmm. the the world and the practice Mm -hmm. but we're still left with this dinosaur of you know this you know we don't engage in the world and the politics you know so I but I think that's a, a phasing that's an old meme that I think is beginning or old stance and I see I have parts of myself I mean I was schooled in that so it's not that I don't have to struggle against that part of myself yeah yeah um, would like you know to- I think about you and Kitty Sara like the Pied Pipers of all of us the the newer 
teachers and particularly a lot of the BIPOC teachers and the white teachers who are really ready and knowing that, you know, this is what the Dharma looks like. This is what it has to look like. This is who we are. I feel it's almost like you all are the pipers and we're, and you're opening that door because as it's changing, you, you two are actually leading that change. And I'm so grateful. That's why I'm saying, you know, in the books that you've left behind and the poetry that you, it's like the little crumbs that you continue. They're not little, they're huge crumbs. They're big bites of food. You're the cook. You're leaving big bites of food for us to digest and to. I think that, you know, like going back to Ajahn Chah, Mm -hmm. one of the things, you know, when people asked him, like, how did he become who he became? You know, I mean, he was, his interface with the West was actually a very small part of his life, but it had a huge impact. Yeah. And he just simply said, I dared to do, you know, I dare to do. And I think that if you want to know the core transmission of Ajahn Chah, for me, that's the, the yeah. infusion yeah. of courage. Courage. To, to be dare to do what we need to do now, because really we're off the map. Yeah. And I think people don't understand. And if you can give some kind of a, leave us with a toolkit of some sort of the heart, how do we, how do we keep our hearts open and, 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 and base ourselves in love and compassion and fight against or be a part of, maybe it's not fight against, maybe those, and be a part of tearing down a system that needs to go? Well, I think, I think you, you named the key, which is keeping our hearts in love and open. And I feel we have to do that together because, you know, on our own, you know, the part of the, part of the correction that has to happen is this overemphasized in the individual journey of awakening. Right. I think that one is that method that, that is true. You know, we have to, this is our, this is our toolkit here, mm-hmm. but you know, it's so clear that we have to have a collective holding together. So yeah. I think we have to come out of our silos and, you know, reach out because it's a very dangerous moment that we're in. And we have to remind each other and feel together how we forge that way forward. You know, we need yeah. a lot of spaces for these kinds of conversations and to have them at a deeper somatic, real truth sharing level. Yeah. Um, that allows, you know, that allows the, the deeper resonances and guidance to emerge as a sort of a harmonic, you know, you'll hear it. Yeah. And I think we can do that internally as well, you know, just to that intuitive, you know, the, the Ajahn Chah called it the living Dharma. The, you know, the Dharma, Dharma is living. Okay, we have these maps and they guide us and I have great respect for the maps, you know, even though yeah. we're, we're ultimately a mapless territory now as a, as a civilization. Yeah. What is going to guide us? Because a lot of these maps, you know, it's not, we can't use them because of the consciousness they were made with. So living Dharma is the real dynamic, intuitive presence of the Mm -hmm. Prajnaparamita wisdom Mm -hmm. that's informing and speaking to us. Mm -hmm. Everything Mm -hmm. is speaking. So to hear that in in tandem with with us finding ways to be together, to have these more real conversations. Yeah, that's so beautiful. You know, because for me, I think about, I feel like I understand it, but I don't know that 
it's understandable because the mind the, the, doesn't really deal well with paradox, you know, that something is and it isn't at the same time. And there's that paradox of this, you know, the mindfulness about accepting what is, like life as it is, accepting what is, and yet changing what is, right? Yes. Both of those things living at the same time. I mean, how do you speak to that? Well, you know, the power, you know, we can see it with the, the this, you know, this, focalization the system rewards psychopathy you know and sociopathy that we're in and you can see what people are doing with that level of power we can see it with what's happening in this current war situation and you know really that that is covered you know you know what we have to look at is human spirit (laughs) the power of human spirit and and to actually energize that yeah. really in a in a much larger collective way and we we already we have so many divisions already internally and then in our dharma world that somehow you know if we're going to focalize as a dharma community to actually find ways to find our common ground mm. without denying the history and the particularity of of the struggles that we need to honor, you know, struggles against racism, struggles against, you know, to, you know, basically the meta system is patriarchy under which all other divisions of hierarchy sit, you know, so Mm -hmm. to be on that agenda, you know, I have a lot of, a lot of um, inspiration from the youth, younger people. Mm. You don't need to, you don't need to read a book to get it. They get it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. uh, As Baba Mandaza would say, you know, they're in in effect the elders, many of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Baba Mandaza. Yeah, yeah. thank you for introducing me to him. Yeah, we must get him back more. Yeah. um, Because he really really is a a voice for the... No, that brings me to wanting to, my last question really is about People's Alliance for... Earth action now. Can you just give us a, a, a window into? Well, it's you know I I've been sort of really called for quite a while to try and you know like pick up and elevate a focus on on the I mean climate such as sort of loose umbrella, but it really is our planetary emergency, which is. We, you know, we've all the things that we know, all the systems that we that we imperialism, colonialism, racism, patriarchy, all of these systems are feeding. You know, to have to try and find a, a clearer voice. And after COP twenty six, which basically the fossil fuel, um, you know, they're just sort of rushing back in to take control, mm-hmm. and they made that very clear. I, you know, it just felt like the only way we're really going to fight off this extinction suicidal trajectory on it is if people rise together. Yeah. And the word, you know, I know in America everything gets acronyms, so I want you to find an acronym. So PN literally yeah. is a word that means, literally means a voice is rising joyfully together, peon of voices. But it also okay. has, it's spelled a bit differently, but peon also means, it's often a derogatory term for the sort of the underdogs, the working class, the, you know, let the right, peons peon. So, But it is that those all, you know, not just the, the sort of frontline hardcore activists, but it is like all of us in every yeah. regular walk of life if we can rise yeah. more and create mm-hmm. you know more engage engaged in actions 
in any ways we can, you know, that will help these tipping points that we need in favor of a new story, the new story as Barbara Mann does, the new story that we all know that we're birthing, we're trying to birth. We've all got, you know, we've all got parts of the coding of that new story. Yeah. So, you know, Peon is really an attempt, you know, I, I see that it's an inspired by uh, you know, people like uh, Kriti Kanko and other people that are working around forming groups, local groups um, to take undertake. And then within an, an interface of more, you know, a global network, okay. different people working and, you know, informed and using Dharma practices, spiritual mm. practices, mm. Uh, checking in. So it's still very emergent. And um, I'm, you know, at the part place of looking at developing a core team and ways that we can just tune into um what's needed and what can we support and what do people want to do i think one of the leading lines i'd like to really focus on is the plant-based there's a plant-based treaty that's come out Mm. to really support that and um Nice. You know, to align, you know, I see it as an alliance with what, you know, it's not like we create, we don't have to recreate the wheel here. We won't do it as well as, you know, so many groups, but how can we support those groups already going? You know, how can we make alliances? And there's so much we can do as a Dharma community, actually. And and how can people find you on the web, find the peon? Well, our website is sacredmountainsanga.org. And it's, you know, there is a there is a menu heading for peon under that. And so people can just sign up. We're it would take us a little while to get organized, but you know, that's happening now to try and build some foundations. Well, there might be some people listening to the podcast who say, I want to, you know, be a part of, of underground level. I hope so. So that's sacredmountainsanga.org.org to find. Yes. You know, if we're at time, I can keep going and going and going. Um, I'm also aware of, we've we both pointed to the fact that there's a war going on right now. And it's the, it's the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yes. And I don't know when this is going to broadcast. And so, and it will have, you know, multiple broadcasts after that. So I just was wondering if you could, if we could end by you leading us into a um, uh, a moment of reflection, of um, prayer around what's happening right, right now. And if you feel like you can just lead us in a way to end this podcast with um, our hearts open to the suffering that's happening there and other places and it would be. I'd love to end like that if you would, if you would mind. Well, yes. I, I mean, war is a is a horrific, horrific thing that we should have delegated to the past century. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, you know, in this current brutish act of violence that is engulfing Ukraine and the Russian peoples. And further afield, and there's been many leading up the the wars in the Middle East that decimated the Middle East, Syria. You know, this 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 is a a sort of like last gasp of the dinosaur of patriarchy and all that goes with it, and it chooses the path of death and destruction and violence, as is the primitive way of trying to crush. Anything that arises that is of a freer spirit, 
So may we hold to this freer spirit, may we trust it and embolden it in ourselves and in each other. Hear its beautiful freer movement in our lives and to divest ourselves from all of the scripts that we've aligned with that keep us embedded in the patriarchal systems that are rooted in such extreme historical violence. And know that this spirit that has been manifested through so many liberation leaders, informed particularly by the spirit, and talking of South Africa, Mr. Mandela and the struggle heroes of that era, and so many around the world up until this moment on front lines, trying to stop pipelines, the First Nation peoples that have carried the spirit for thousands of years, withstanding the worst brutalities of colonialism. We give thanks and we honor also our own ancestors that have stood up in so many ways to try and hold this free spirit against horrific forces of oppression and violence. This is a power in and of itself. May we hold to this power. May we honor it wherever it manifests in this world, in ourselves, in the children, in the grandparents, in peoples everywhere, in the plants, in the trees, in the free-flowing oceans and rivers and streams. May all spirit, may all hearts be touched and infused with the power of love, knowing at depth that love is really feeling and being with the extraordinary, magical interbeing of everything in this sacred web of life, knowing that we are connected in a cosmology of mystery, and radiance at its core, this great conscious knowing, present awareness, resident in the hearts of all and resident within our hearts. May all be awakened within this heart. May all that hold the path of fear and oppression and violence, may they also be freed. They all return to their original nature. May we all know peace, love, strength, courage, presence, and may that liberate all beings now and always. Namo Guan Shiryam Pusa. Namo Amita Buddha. Namo Sakyamuni Buddha. Namo all beings everywhere through time, through space. Ashe, ashe, ashe. I can't thank you enough. Oh, you're so welcome, Conda. I'm glad we got to do this today. Me too. I needed this. I needed you. I needed us. Mm. I needed this. And, you know, it's for everybody else, but it's for me as well. Thank you. Thank you, Tanisara. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.